Welcome to Story Jam. Stephanie Rogers. I am the producer of Story Jam, a live-lit storytelling and music show based in Chicago. It is June of 2020, and we are in the midst of a global pandemic. For the last week, people across the United States and around the world have taken to the streets to protest police brutality against black men and women. Story Jam supports the anti-racism movement and anti-racist introspection, and we believe in social justice activism. Our show is intentionally filled with cultural and racial diversity. We find that there is a value in sharing our personal stories. They inspire human connection and understanding and empathy. Today's episode features one of Story Jam's most beloved tellers, Lynn Jordan. Lynn is known as Diva Jordan, or just the Diva. (laughs) She's an incredible performer, singer, and storyteller. After Lynn's story and the song I wrote for her, I'll have a little chat with Lynn about what is going on in the world and what she is doing with her time and talents right now. By the way, Story Jam is sponsored by Stella, a fun and funky boutique on Central Street in Evanston. They carry clothing, artisan jewelry, gifts, and accessories. This store is so cool. Check out Stella Boutique at StellaEvanston.com. Their social media posts new merch every day. So go and see what is going on at Stella, StellaEvanston.com. That's S-T-E-L-L-A, Evanston.com. So without further ado, here is Lynn Jordan, live at Story Jam. Nigger, 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 nigger. I'm eight years old. And that was the first time a white person had called me a nigger. Nigger. It was 1969. My parents, in their great wisdom and concern for my future in education, had taken me from the public school in my neighborhood, which was a working class, middle class neighborhood filled with two-story A-frame homes and manicured lawns, flowers, families. Everybody knew each other all the way across town to an all-white neighborhood, which is where this school was located, a private school. Now, it was scary and it was exciting to ride this big bus with all the other black kids that were being, we weren't being bussed. Our parents were paying for us to be transported to parochial and private schools on the other side of town. There were three black kids in this school, me, Kevin Jackson, and Denise Holt, who was my best friend. And I really didn't have a hard time adapting to being in an all-white environment because it was just like TV (laughs) and the movies and the Oscars. (laughs) I had to do what I had to say. (laughs) But my parents, my parents were not racist. They weren't prejudiced. They were lovers of the human race. But being a black family, and this is in the 60s, I grew up aware of 
the troubles in the world, aware of race in America. I was brought up hearing stories. My great-grandmother was a slave. My grandfather had escaped a lynch mob in the South and relocated to Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, which is where I was born and raised. So I knew there were bad white people in the world, but I was never taught that all white people were bad, but they did exist. I grew up hearing the stories, of course, the escape from the lynching, but there was one story that my mother told. She was about five years old, and this was in 1935, and she remembered it vividly. They'd be in the house just hanging out, doing whatever families, black families did in 1935, and all of a sudden, a brick would come through the window, a big crash, shattering glass, and they knew what it was. Oh, Lord Jesus, oh, Lord Jesus, the Klan is here, hide the babies, oh my God, the Klan is here, the Klan is here. Everybody's running around, the house is full of chaos, and they could see the glow of a flame because the Klan had put a wooden cross in the front yard and set it on fire. Oh my God, oh my God! My mom says she remembers being hidden under a bed on the main floor, not to the basement, because I was like, why don't you go to the basement? And she said, if they set your house on fire, the kids would be trapped in the basement. We knew that from the Rakestraw family. Rakestraw family kids were all burned to death when the Klan attacked their house. They put all the kids in the basement to hide them. Somebody threw something that was a flame and the whole house just went up and they were trapped. So no basement, stayed on the ground level, hiding from the Klan. Now my grandfather was a preacher, but he was badass. Now remember, he had escaped from a lynch mob he was run out of town by the mob, by the, by the mob, but by the clan. It wasn't even the clan. It was just, as he said, just a bunch of peck of woods. <laughs> but anyway, that was the setting. The house is in total chaos. And my grandfather, like some character from a Quentin Tarantino movie, had two sawed-off shotguns. And he would get one like this and one in his left arm. And reciting scripture would walk out on the front porch. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy stab that comfort me. I remember my Aunt Edline used to say she could hear Papa, that's what they call grand, the grandfather, she could hear him breathing all the way in the back of the house as he stood on the porch with two sawed-off shotguns facing the Klan, cross burning in the middle, Klan on the street, and there's Papa. He was about six foot four. He said, I ain't scared of these crackers. I ran once, but I'll be damned if these crackers gonna run me away from my house again. And they stared at each other. And then the white boys, the Klan, started laughing. <laughs> you crazy nigger, you crazy nigger. We gonna come in here, we gonna burn up you. 
ass, nigger. <laughs> they jump in their car and drive off. And this happened three times. They would come to the house, Papa get his sawed off shotguns, walk out doing his scripture, stand in front, and they would laugh at him and leave. Now to me, that's what the word nigger meant. It meant the Klan, it meant a burning cross, it meant guns, it meant a lynching. But I know Danny Donahue wasn't thinking that when he called me nigger. He just knew it was a powerful word. The next day at school, I sit down. Now in this particular school that I attended, it was kind of progressive. So in the third grade, you didn't just sit in one classroom, you changed classes like in high school. So this particular teacher, Mr. Wrights, would put us in discussion groups. And that's when Danny would sit behind me and start, nigger, 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 nigger. It drove me crazy. But I never told my mother and I never told the teacher. Finally, on the third day, I did tell my mom. I said, mommy, he keeps calling me nigger. And she just said, well, he probably learned that somewhere at home or something. Just ignore it. I'm like, ignore it? Now, meanwhile, I'm thinking of all these stories she told about lynchings and the Klan and burning crosses, and she tells me to ignore this kid calling me a nigger? No, it wasn't gonna happen. So I made a little plan in my eight-year-old mind. I couldn't wait to go to Mr. Wright's class. And he called for discussion groups and I sat down and I waited because he wasn't going to get away with it. And I noticed Danny went and sat behind Kevin Jackson. Now Kevin Jackson was the other black kid in my school and he was a tough kid, kind of a bully. Nobody fucked with Kevin Jackson. I was like, ooh, he gonna get it, he gonna get it. He gonna call Kevin a nigga and Kevin's gonna beat his ass. So I sat there, but nothing happened. Disappointment. So recess comes and I run up to Kevin and I'm like, Kevin, did Danny Donahue call you a nigga? Girl, no, he ain't call me no nigga. Did he call you a nigga? Yeah. Well, what you do? Did you beat his ass? No, girl, you need to beat his ass. You want me to beat his ass? I was like, no, 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 no. No, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just tell Mr. Wrights. Girl, he ain't gonna do nothing. Well, I'm just gonna tell Mr. Wrights. Well, actually, he called me a nigga last month. What did you do? What did you do? I punched him in the stomach and then I got in trouble for fighting. Well, why didn't you just, why didn't you just tell the teachers that, that why, you, why, you, why you punched him? Because he called you a nigga. They ain't going to do nothing. What they going to do? They're not going to do nothing. Okay. All right. Even Kevin couldn't handle this nigger thing. But I had a plan. The next time we had a discussion, I was like, oh, please, God, please let him sit behind me. Please, oh, please, oh, please, God, please, God, please. And I sat down and I waited and Danny Donahue sat right behind me and it didn't take more than a second. Nigger, 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 nigger. I turned around and I said, what did you say? Nigger, 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 nigger. 
Say it again. Nigger, nigger. Say it again. Nigger, 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 nigger. Say it again. Nigger. Say it again. Nigger, nigger. Say it again. What's going on around here? What's going on? Danny Donahue called me a nigger. I did not call her a nigger. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Come on. Both of you were going to the office. Kevin yells from the back of the room. He called me a nigger last month. No, I didn't. The whole classroom in unison. Yes, you did. Mr. Wrights takes us both to the office. Parents are called. Now, I might mention that Danny's father is a very well-known public figure in Dayton, a very strong liberal and a staunch supporter of the civil rights movement. So calling his little classmate a nigger is not a good thing for his publicity. We get to the office. My mother shows up looking worried and concerned. Mr. Donahue shows up in a blue suit with a very red face. We stand there. Mr. Rice explains to the two adults what has happened. Danny denies it. I didn't call her a nigger. I didn't call her a nigger. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. She's a liar. Actually, he denies it, but he did call her the name. In fact, she's not the only student who she, he called a nigger. And everyone saw it. Danny's father's face gets redder and redder like it's about to explode. I tell the whole story. And as I get to the part, my mother, who was looking very concerned and holding her stomach, starts to <coughs> hold in laughter. And I'm like, why is she laughing? She's like, <coughs> Mr. Donahue's freaking out, gesturing, pacing back and forth in the office. And then he turns to my mom and he's like, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Jordan. You know, that's not how I raise my children. It's not in our house. I don't know where he got this from. And my mother, the big drama queen that she is, milks the moment. Well, you know, my father escaped a lynch mob. My, my grandmother was a slave and I took my child out of the school in our neighborhood and paid tuition to have her bust here not to be called a nigger by your son or anybody else. She got all righteous in the end. <laughs> so Danny left with his father and I went back to the classroom and I never saw this kid again. It was like he just... His dad just withdrew him from the school. Okay. I got back to Mr. Wright's class, and for the next two months, we started studying slavery, Jim Crow. We visited the Paul Lawrence Dunbar House, which is based in Dayton, Ohio. 
We also studied lynching, which I was able to give a paper on because I had personal experience. And they started teaching black history in all the classes after that. At least the ones from third, it was actually they started fourth grade up, but we were in third grade. And as for Danny Donahue, after his father withdrew him from our school, he took all of his kids out of the school they were in, because two of them were in high school, and he put them in all black schools. I read about this in the paper. And so, that was that. Nobody else called me a nigger in that school. And the whole story kind of died down, except in my household. For 15 years, this is what I had to live with. My mother. Lenny, 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 come here, come here. Now I want you to tell everybody about that time Bill Donahue's son called you a nigger. That's all. Phil Donahue, your son's a racist, and I bet you didn't even know it. You're a liberal everybody loves, but you spawned an asshole. Stevie Wonder has estranged kids. Joni Mitchell has a daughter Who's been in jail and hooked on heroin And tried to steal her money When you don't live up to your mom and dad That's so sad, that's so sad When you don't live up to your mom and dad That's so sad Martin Sheen is an activist He played POTUS on Sorkin's West Wing Then there's Charlie, his abusive son Sully, his good name When you don't live up to your mom and dad That's so sad, that's so sad When you don't live up to your mom and dad That's so sad When you don't live up to your mom and dad That's so sad, that's so sad When you don't live up to your mom and dad That's so sad That's so Just can't believe it. Okay. <laughs>
<laughs> a bit of tongue-in-cheek for Lynn Jordan. I am sure little Danny turned out to be a good man because how could he not? Let's hold out hope. His father was Phil Donahue, a liberal and political activist who had a talk show for about 30 years. He lambasted Trump in the 1980s. He continues to be a civil rights activist. Anyway, here is the conversation I had with Lynn Jordan. Hello, hon. Are you managing? I mean, you know, we got a plague. We have riots. We have killer hornets. Next are the frogs, right? (laughs) (laughs) Was this a common occurrence or was this a one-time thing? It was a one-time thing. There were constructors there that were kind of radical. And there were some pretty lefty types I mean, he was obviously just being a jerk. And he, you know, he he basically harassed everybody. But it was not atypical of any other kids that were going to school, you know, little black kids going to school with white kids. You know what I mean? Which is so weird, because don't you learn this shit at home? Oh, he had some old, you know, (laughs) as my dad said, some old cracker. He had some old cracker. (laughs) Teaching him wrong. That's what my dad said. But um, (laughs) do you feel like you have a certain message that you are required to disseminate to your audiences who are probably mostly white? You know, Story Jam audience, we we get criticized sometimes for our audience being mostly white. Oh, I've been criticized about my audiences being mostly white. So girl, please. It's like whoever pays admission, (laughs) that's who comes in. You know, so. Well, also, I'm happy to see that we can share stories with folks who not only want to hear them, but might need to hear them. But as the person of color who comes to perform for a mostly white audience, do you feel like there is an obligation on your part to relay some sort of message? Um, Not so much an obligation, but um, more like a compulsion sometimes. I mean, I just want to tell human stories. Like I think of the whole institution of slavery, the whole history of um, discrimination, all of that as being, though it is pretty global, (laughs) but an American story. And I think the best way, if the intention is truly to educate and bring people together, you have to do it in a way that people will accept it. Because you know what approach is going to bring what reaction. And I have found that um, why not do a little unifying while you're up there? I mean, I don't go and think, oh, I must go educate white people. But if... I'm going to write a story. It seems the ones that are more profound or more affecting to me are ones of weight and now age and pain, (laughs) but you know, of, of race. And because I was kind of immersed in white institutions from age eight on, I mean, I went to this school that was predominantly white. My high school was a little bit more mixed, but um, it was very, um, African-Americans were like, you know, a minority. And then I went to a university where when I went, it was 10% out of several thousand, you know, so. At Northwestern? Yeah. Who started calling you a diva? When did that happen? I was singing at um, Halstead Street Fair and all these guys at the end, the boys were all going, diva, diva, and throwing dollar bills at me. <laughs> And that's the first time I ever, that I recall people calling me diva. And then, you know, it just kind of stuck. 
That's a lot to live up to. Well, I don't care. I mean, I'm like, just like, as long as you pay me, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> just call me, you know, seriously. <laughs> I don't think, the, uh, I mean, to me, it just means big fun and, you know, larger than life or whatever. I've known you for many years. I knew you before you even knew who I was. I knew who you were. Everybody knows who you are, Lynn Jordan. That's what they keep telling me. I'm like, really? (laughs) Okay. All right. (laughs) Do you have any messages to announce to our audience? I'm doing, of course, live concerts, live streaming stuff, which has been amazing because I, I have a pretty good fan base and they're extremely supportive. So I do these little concerts and they donate. They like pay a tip, you know, what they, I mean, the money they're saving in booze and food, you know, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Everyone's being so generous. How can people find out when you're doing that, Lynn? I do have a website, lynnjordan.com, L-Y-N-N-E-J-O-R-D-A-N.com. What I've also been doing is these divagram things. Someone contacts me, I, we come up with a song and a greeting, and I film it, edit it, and send it out to them. That's a great idea. Do you wear a costume? Do you wear your feather boa? I have not put the boa on because the one time I tried singing in a boa, I got so hot and sweaty, I kept having to stop to like powder my face. I need a crew. <laughs> I need a crew. A diva needs her team. Girl, please. <laughs> Lynn Jordan, I just want to thank you so much for giving us a, an amazing story at Story Jam. Oh, it's a great thing what you're doing. It's amazing because it's like, no one would do that much work, sucker. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, writing songs. I mean, I went, Lynn, please get your piece in. I only have a day now to write your song instead of two months. You know? And I'm like, oh, I keep forgetting she's got to write an original song and then chart it out. <laughs> Jeez. Listen, it's always worth it. When I have to wait for your damn story, it is always worth it. Now, the song may be just like half a chorus and, and a verse instead of a, a real song. No, you're a machine now because those songs, those songs, they're just beautiful. They're sweet. And then the idea you came where you had the, came up with the, with the other songwriters. Yes. Now it's like, oh, let someone else do some of this crap. But it was, a, <laughs> that was even more amazing. But when you get somebody like Liam Davis or Sarah Marie Young. You really give a lot of love and support to your performers, which is needed. You know, it's just, just like, thank you, my love. I love you so much. Oh, is it over? You've been trying to say goodbye now for like 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> But I love you, and thanks. This has been fun. From the diva herself. And luckily, we recorded this, and I can hear it forever. Thank you so much, Lynn Jordan. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you, dear listeners. Please always remember, now more than ever, in perpetuum storius. It means keep the stories going. See you next time at Story Jam. Check us out at storyjamshow.com.